Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. You are actually tuned into part two of our two-part uh, episode with Dr. Gibbons going over pediatric upper extremity trauma. So if you haven't listened to part one, go back and check out that episode. And this time we're going to continue with some upper extremity uh, trauma. So if you haven't already, check out the YouTube channel if you want to take a peek at some of the x-rays that we're talking about, even though we try to describe it the best that we can. And hopefully follow us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at Nailed It Ortho. That way you stay up to date on some exclusive things. We might do some giveaways, things of that sort. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. And what about on the completely other side, the medial epicondyle, not the medial condyle, but medial epicondyle. Yeah. So this one's a little bit more controversial. Yep. So number one, tests always ask about this. You'll get a not so great x-ray. Uh, oh, this is perfect. So the lateral x-ray that you have here, if you look underneath the capitellum, you see a little ball. And you're supposed to be able to notice that that little ball in there shouldn't be there. That's the medial epicondyle that's stuck in the joint. 50% um, of these are associated with an elbow dislocation. Um, so let's let's start from there. Yeah. If 50% of them are associated with an elbow dislocation, what you want to do first is try and close, reduce the elbow. If it pops out and it's in an okay position, you can treat it non-operatively in a cast. Um, so then let's talk about what is in an okay location. That's the controversy. Yeah. Uh, some people say uh, up to two centimeters of displacement is fine. And it, you know, there's good papers that show that, uh, even though they heal with a fibrous union, uh, clinically, uh, the patients do well. I would say the caveat to that. So number one, you're going to fix this if it's entrapped in the joint because you can't leave it there. So if you're going to open it up to get it out, might as well fix it. Secondly, there's some data to suggest fixing it in a dominant arm athlete. And if you think about it logically, you know, what attaches to that, all the flexor tendons. And so we want them to be in their anatomic location rather uh, than being in a different spot because it heals, you know, a centimeter off with a fibrous union. And so that's where you're going to get controversy. Some people still treat it non-operatively. Other people, if it's an athlete, they'll treat it with a screw. Yeah, I've heard even at our own institution, we've had case discussions where we where patients have this exact same injury and one tending treated it one way and the other one's like, no, you need to absolutely fix that, especially if they're a thrower or, you know, if they're any, any type of athlete. Uh, but just like you just said, any any of that fracture and trapped into the joint, I know I've seen at least a couple of questions on that. And, they, and just like you just said, they just show you that lateral of the X-ray and you're supposed to be able to recognize that the medial epicondyle is in the joint itself. And, and that's essentially why, you'll, you know, if you're going to get a question on a test about a medial epicondyle, it's always going to be an elbow dislocation and, the re and entrapped in the joint. And the reason is because the indications to fix it are so all over the place that they can't really say, what would you do for this? Because people can't agree. And so if it's entrapped in the joint, then you know, okay, we got to open it up, put it in the right place and fix it. And Dr. Gibbons, when, when you fix this, are you fixing it, you know, with the screw and washer fixation? Just like this, okay. single screw, partially threaded up that medial uh, 
column. Now, this screw does not have to go by quartable. This screw gets really, really good purchase in bone. In fact, there's been a couple of times where, you know, normally for screws like this, you can just kind of pop the near cortex and put the screw in. I've had two cases where I just could not advance the screw all the way in and had to take it out and actually drill the entire length of the screw to put it in. For some reason, this screw has an enormous bite. The, the tidbit I would give you is you want to be prepared. Sometimes that meat off a condyle is small. And if you crank down too hard on your screw, you can explode that fragment. And so the bailout for that is to have suture anchors that you can wrap through the tendon there and then put a suture anchor into the humerus. So if you're ever in trouble, that's your bailout if that screw ends up busting apart that medial epicondyle. Yeah, I remember I was, I was in a case and I was putting the screw in the attending the case. It was like, all right, do not over tighten this or else you're going to make this into a worst case. You're going to, you're going to fracture it. So I'm just going super slow two finger tight. <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're a resident, always tell the attending, I think I got it tight enough. Why don't you check it and make them be the one to do the last turn. So they can't Another good it. tip. Another yeah. good tip. <laughs> well, <Wow. laughs> uh, another one I always found very confusing. First off were these distal humeral uh, physial fractures, but sometimes it, it looks like the elbows dislocate. I couldn't really tell. Um, can you kind of just touch base on these these distal humeral uh, physio fractures, kind of what they're associated with? Any, any tips that you may have of how to uh, how to be able to recognize this too? Yeah, so these are they're not super common, but they're commonly tested. And so the question becomes, how do you figure out how to recognize them? If you, you know, I rotated on Pete's for six months and when as a resident, and I never saw one of these. So how are you supposed to know? What I would say is number one, the radius and the ulna stay together. So they go as a pair. So it's not some weird montasia or something like that. They're, they're, they're going together. It almost looks like the forearm is separate from the humerus. And then the second thing is when these happen usually in kids younger than three years of age, an elbow dislocation in someone younger than three is super duper duper rare because of the mantra that you're your physes are the weakest part of your bone. Your ligaments are stronger. That's why you get these avulsion fractures when you're young because bone tends to rip off, not the joint dislocating. So if there is a toddler that has an x-ray like this, it is a distal humeral physeal separation until proven otherwise. Yeah. So what that means is that can be really confusing. The distal humerus has the distal humeral physis. And at this age, everything distal, like think of it as like the supracondylar part of the distal humerus is all cartilage. So you can't see it. So you can kind of think of it as almost like a, like a supracondylar in a really young person. The only difference is it goes right through the distal humeral physis instead of above it, which is why we call it a supracondylar humerus fracture. Um, if you're lucky, their capitellum has started to ossify. And when that's the case, you'll see the radial head still pointing at the capitellum because it pops off. And so that lets you know it's a fracture, not a dislocation. Um, if you are unsure, then typically we're going to do an arthrogram of this. And once you put that dye in, you'll see this big old chunk of distal humerus still articulating with the proximal radius and, and ulna. Um, 
And so you fix it like a super condor with a close reduction, put it in place, and then put a couple pins across it. But just know you can't see it until there's dye in there. Okay. So this and, one is going to get an arthrogram. And one of the things that I was reading on this is if you see these, you know, initially you can try to reduce it. But so what if what if this is two weeks out? It was initially missed because a first, you know, a resident on the first go around saw it. I was like, oh, it looks fine. Send it out. And they come back to your office, you know, two weeks later and they have this x-ray, which is the same as the initial one, but it wasn't picked up. Do you still try to reduce it, you know, or, you know, in your, or do you just, I mean, what, what, what do you do? You always wonder, you, you know, you, you read and they say you could cause physio damage if you try to reduce these. So That's what, right. So you, you think of this as a, a physis injury. And so late reductions of physis, once it's already starting to try and heal, can cause more physial damage. So you don't want to do it once it's already starting to heal. Plus, um, you know, you're going to have to break apart a bunch of bone and callus and stuff to put it back in the right place. It's always easier to come back and do a distal humerus osteotomy as opposed to, you know, a big case of chopping away bone and potentially damaging that physis. Because um, even though the distal humerus is only 20% of the growth of the proximal humerus, when they're this young and have this injury, they're usually one or two, maybe three. And so they do have a decent amount of remodeling potential that can help you later on if you have to come back. Ah, okay. That makes total sense. And so moving more distally, going towards maybe the elbow or going towards the radius and the form, um, can you kind of test based on the difference of the treatment when you have a proximal radius fracture versus more a kind of maybe a diaphyseal, you know, radial fracture. Are there any differences between how much um, deformity you can accept, things of that sort? Yeah. So the, you know, the more proximal you go on the radius, the less remodeling potential it has. So 80% of the growth of the radius is at the distal radius. And that's why, you know, um, when you have a big bow in the proximal radius, not only does it have less chance of straightening up all the way, but also with a big bow up there, it makes pronation, supination difficult. And so those you treat a little bit more aggressively than when you have a distal third radius. When we're talking about the proximal radius, everyone always hears this, the, the radial head should always point at the capitellum on every view. Uh, on this one, you can see laterally on the proximal radius, you see how it's got that kind of wedge in it and that's because it's kind of smushed um and that's why it's pointing kind of lateral to the capitellum um reason it's important is you want this articulation to be good because if it's not good it leads to elbow problems and stiffness um and so less than 30 degrees of angulation you can treat in a long arm cast and after about two or three weeks they usually have enough callus to let them start moving um You'll never get in trouble for putting a cast on one of these instead of a sling. Like in an adult with a proximal radius, you're thinking sling, gentle motion. Right. Um, in kids, you'll never go wrong putting them in a cast um, if you ever have a question. That's for residents out there. Okay. Um, in terms of reduction, multiple different methods. I will. I would say that it's difficult, fun, but difficult. Um, some people like the uh, the maneuver of uh, putting your thumb 
on the proximal part of that and then putting them into Barris and then pushing that piece over. I've seen that kind of work sometimes and not work other times. Uh, you can do the uh, S-mark uh, maneuver where you put the S-mark going up the arm to try and push it over. Um, my go-to is percutaneous with K-wires. Okay. Um, I like being able to just pop it through the skin uh, and push that piece over. Um, sometimes you can use that K-wire uh, and put it in fracture site and kind of lever that radial head back on top. Um, and then uh, there's a maneuver where you put a, a flexible nail in distally like you normally would for a flex nail of a forearm, putting it up, uh, putting the little curve part of that flex nail into the piece and then rotating it back around. I've seen kind of varying success with that. Um, but my go-to, if I can't get it by pushing it over, uh, uh, I usually will percutaneously put a K-wire in there to try and joystick it over. Yeah, so I will I'm tell you, though, the only thing I would highly recommend against is opening it because the number one cause of a poor outcome with a radial head or neck fracture in a young person is opening the radial capitella joint. Huh. It leads to really, really bad stiffness. Now, sometimes you might have to, but if at all possible, just get it to within about 30 degrees and call it good because opening that can lead to really, really bad stiffness. And so because of that, these I try and get moving as soon as possible. So if you push it over with a K-wire and it's stable, you can put them in a cast. I try it two weeks to get the cast off and start moving, get them moving early because this gets stiff unlike other elbow fractures. If you push it over and, you know, you try and move the arm and it keeps moving back, then you can pin it with a K-wire, um, whether it's pinning it uh, across the fracture site or pinning from the capitellum in, you know, from posteriorly into the radial head uh, and just uh, cut it and bend it just outside the skin so that you can remove it, but uh, get them moving early. Yeah, I remember when I was uh, reading up on this in the reduction maneuvers, there were like three or four different maneuvers described, and, uh, and there are a lot of different techniques. And I saw the bandage where you just use an S mark. I was like, oh, okay, that that seems maybe one of the easier ones to do out of out of those. And, you it's know. interesting because you can read papers from various institutions, and some people say this works really well for them. Other people say this works well for them. Mm -hmm. uh, I've tried them all, and what I found that. It, embarrassing the arm and pushing with my thumb tends to work the best. And when that doesn't work, I just go straight to percutaneous with a K wire. Okay. Awesome. And we have a couple more here. And, and then before we wrap up, um, so what about nurse maze up? You know, this is the thing that we all learn about it in, in med school. Maybe we could spend 30 seconds or really quick, just kind of let us know what nurse made elbows is. So maybe when you're in practice and somebody calls you or, you know, the, primary care or the ED calls, they can kind of explain the difference and tell them what to do. Um, so typically nurse made, it, it's almost always the, the arm got pulled and it doesn't even have to be super hard because um, it's not like abuse where they tugged on the arm. It's usually like, Johnny, come on. And they just kind of grab him a little bit. And all of a sudden the kid yells and they're holding their arm against their body and they don't want to move it. And so um, sometimes x-rays might show you something, but other times it's really hard to see. 
Um, so typically it's a clinical diagnosis. And when you suspect it, um, you reduce it by supinating the arm and then flexing the elbow up. And typically, if you kind of put your fingers on it, you can feel or even sometimes hear an audible pop. And as soon as it pops back in, most of the time it's stable. All of a sudden the kid feels fine and they want to move it. Um, it's not that common that it pops in and then comes back out. So if there's any concern about it being, you know, not stable, then I just put a long arm cast and supination. Okay. Um, but that is not super common. Usually it just pops right in. Um, if, if, uh, if your family member has this and they bring them over and you do it, you feel like a hero. Um, but, uh, most of the time the ER will take care of this before even talking to you. Yeah. All right. That's awesome. And so one of the other things that we, that we see a lot are these kind of these diaphysial form fractures. At least I know at children's here, I saw this a lot and got called in the middle of the night to Cassie's a lot of times. Um, so, so, so quickly, I guess, what are some indications for when casting is not appropriate or will not work to when you would go and fix it? Because most of the times we get called with this, we say, okay, get the sedation lined up. And then we, you know, recreate the deformity, reduce it, put it in a long arm cast. So in what situations are you saying, okay, well, you know, they, they got this both bone form fracture. It's not necessarily treated like an adult where you'd fix everything. So, you know, how can you kind of take me through your, your treatment algorithm? Yeah. So what I would say is the majority can be treated with close reduction and casting. Uh, when that starts to be a problem is if obviously the younger you are, the more deformity you can accept. Most people would say 15 to 20 degrees of angulation when you are younger than 10 years of age. The only caveat to that is when it's really proximal because the proximal radius doesn't remodel as good. So when it ends up being proximal third radius, I'm a little bit more aggressive than when it's like this, like diaphyseal or distal. As you get older, um, older than 10 years of age, then you really can't tolerate much more than 10 degrees. Now, some people will surprise you and remodel a lot, um, but the go-to would be flex nails first. Um, percutaneous incision, uh, the only caveat to that is you don't want to have multiple passes across the fracture site because you have the, the risk of compartment syndrome with that. And then secondly, when it's a distal both bone uh, or the distal radius is like a distal third, um, that's when you would consider uh, percutaneous pinning. Or if you're going to use a flex nail, that's the time when you would use the flex nail from a dorsal Lister's tubercle approach. And the reason is if you put it in the standard lateral uh, radial position, it doesn't have a lot of distal bone to work with. And so once it comes around the corner, you'll you'll have it reduced, but you'll see it kind of cockeyed and it'll make you feel like, yeah, well, I could have made that look better. So those distal third ones start dorsally. Mm. And another good, good tidbit. So anybody listening to this, Maybe you wanted to go into pediatrics or you're just on your pediatrics rotation and you are, you know, you may have one of these and you're going to go fix it just to go. I hope you're writing some of this, this stuff down, all of this good information. Um, and moving forth, you know, we have like maybe one or two left, uh, this montage of fractures. How often are you seeing these? And then what is the treatment typically like for, you know, the pediatrics? When we talk about adults, we talk about, okay, well, you fix the ulna, then 
the radius should be fixed. Well, we're typically opening up and fixing that with kids. I don't know if that's always uh, the case. Yeah, I would say the pearl for this is anytime you have a forearm fracture, make sure you have the wrist and the elbow visible uh, so you know what you're dealing with. Um, this is not an uncommon fracture. Fracture the ulna with the radial head dislocation. The treatment is pretty straightforward. Um, CHOP has a really good paper. Um, shoot, it's probably five years old now that has a treatment algorithm for this. So if it is a uh, length stable fracture, let me back up. The key to these is getting the ulna out to length. When the ulna is out to length, the radial head will pop back in. So if it is a length stable fracture, you can treat it in just a cast. Um, if it's a length stable fracture, but it won't stay in a cast, then you can put a flex nail in the ulna to hold it out um, anatomically reduced and that will bring the radial head in. If it is a length unstable ulna, then those are typically treated with a plate. And if you ever do one of these and you put a flex nail in the ulna and it looks pretty good, but the radial head just won't go in, usually that means the ulna is not quite anatomically reduced. And so you don't have to open the radial capitellar joint. When you get the ulna correct, the radial head will go back into place. Yeah, perfect. And that's, a, again, big things with these Montasia fractures where you have an ulna fracture and a radial head dislocation, just like you were saying. You get the ulna out to length and then your radius should reduce. And if it's not, then you got to go back and see if you really have your anatomic reduction of your ulna. And so what happens when these are chronically missed? Say, for example, disaster. <laughs> <laughs> rough cases, right? Do you, are these something that have you seen these, you know, in your I practice? probably see one of these every year and a half, something like that. It's not super common. People are pretty good nowadays at, at, at recognizing it. The, the key is to get it, you know, when you say chronic Montasia, you know, six months out, a year out, you just don't want it, you know, five years out because it makes your life harder. So number one, you just want to make sure it's not a congenital radial head dislocation. The way that you know that is that they used to have normal motion and now they don't. Number two, when the radial head is out from birth, it doesn't develop its normal concavity. And it's actually convex. It will almost have a have a, a dome on the radial head. And so on this one, you can see there is a nice flat or concave radial epiphysis. And that lets you know that it used to be in, but now it's not. Yeah. The key to these is essentially just like the key to the acute ones is getting the ulna in a better position. So typically you're doing a flexion osteotomy, the ulna, and it usually pulls. So the annular ligament is still attached to the radial neck here and the proximal ulna. So if you can flex that proximal ulna down, it will pull that radial head down into place. And so if you do a flexion osteotomy, like you see with this plate and the radial head is stable, you're done. If you do it and the radial head keeps popping out, then you can put a pin uh, in the radial head. Some people suggest go ahead and opening that uh, radial capitellar joint and reconstructing the annular ligament. Um, but putting it back into place, you just want to make sure when you leave the OR, that radial head is stable. Yeah. Because if it's at all loosey-goosey, it's just going to come right back out. So you want to be sure. I just did one of these last week. You never mm -hmm. want to do them. 
But when you do, <laughs> you know, leave the OR making sure that, you know, when you move that elbow, that radial head is staying where it should be. Perfect. And, and moving forward to kind of our last, you know, topic of, of today, well, at least with the upper extremity trauma, the distal forearm fractures with, that we briefly mentioned a little bit earlier when we were talking about remodeling potential. But I also believe I saw a lot of these on call as well. So can you kind of take us through maybe some quickly with some of the different uh, types? Because one is kind of the more like the buckle. I remember that being something specifically that we talked about during our, you know, our pediatric rotations and then kind of how we, your algorithm for treating these distal forearm fractures. Yeah. So buckle fracture literally means that, that the bone buckled. So remember kids' bones are a little softer. Um, the way I explain it to the parents, because you may look at this with some kind of ortho experience and think, oh, that's a nothing burger. But the parents and the kid are like, oh my gosh, I broke my arm. And so I usually say, you know, in an adult, you have a hard bone. So sometimes when you fall, it goes. But when you're a kid, your bones a little softer. So instead it just goes and kind of buckles a little. And that makes them feel a little bit more comfortable with what they're dealing with. Buckle fractures can be treated in a short arm cast or if it's a true buckle in a uh, Velcro wrist brace. Anecdotally, the majority of parents want a cast. Like they're like, oh, little Sarah is, runs around all the time. We need a cast to protect it. <laughs> when it's a true, um, complete uh, distal forearm fracture, um, it's pretty similar to the diaphyseal fractures in that about 20 degrees of angulation. Um, also, when they're young, like less than 10, they can be bayoneted. I like to tell residents that as long as there's some type of cortical contact, usually they can be treated non-operatively. If you have a true distal uh, radius or distal both bone fracture and, and it's unacceptable alignment, the first go-to is closed reduction and percutaneous pinning. Different than in adults, you can usually get it within an acceptable alignment. And again, if you're doing these, just like any of these, when you're, when you're in the OR, when you leave the OR, you want it to be acceptable. That means if you can tolerate, if this kid came to the ER and it was 10 degrees extended and you would say, oh, it's only 10 degrees, I'm going to treat this in a cast. Then when you're in the OR and you pin it and, and it may be five, 10 degrees extended, just know that you can still accept that and you don't have to take the pins out, redo it and spend a bunch of extra time. You're just making it into acceptable parameters. Yeah. And it doesn't matter the amount of pins that go through the FICES on this one. And when you're, when you're pinning these. Yeah, smooth pins, uh, one or two, you can, it's really hard to start proximal to that physis because it's a steep angle. So I always tell people, I like this. If you start at the radio styloid, you have a nice starting point. You don't skive off. You can make that angle a little better. And you, you don't get seal arrest from a nice smooth pin as long as you're not making like 20 passes. Right. <laughs> Very true. All, all, all good tidbits. Uh, well, Dr. Gibbons, I think this has been a great talk. We talked a good amount about a lot of different uh, a lot of different conditions, a lot of different traumatic injuries uh, that you know our pediatric population faces and kind of how to treat them, different treatment algorithms. Anything else that you would like for the people to know? or any other words for, uh, you know, when we're talking about these upper extremity trauma? Uh, the only thing I would say is just remember kids are not small adults. You uh, treat them differently. And so uh, it can be a little daunting at first, 
But once you kind of understand the principles, it can be pretty fun because it's a, a lot of times more minimally invasive and a quicker recovery. And uh, there's nothing like uh, a kid or a parent who's super appreciative of uh, uh, their child getting back to the stuff they want to do. Awesome. And Dr. Gibbons, for those that are listening, how can they how can the people follow you if they just want to check check out what you have going on? If you want to give them your social media, you want people to follow you on or if not, it's completely fine. Totally. Uh, up to- yeah. So uh, truth be told, my wife set up my social media because she's better at that stuff. Nice. It's at Dr. Stephen Gibbons on Twitter. Um, and uh, if you go to the UT Health San Antonio website and find my profile, you're welcome to email me at any time with any questions or uh, concerns or anything I may have said wrong tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Gibbons, again, it's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. Those are listening. Hope that you learn uh, a bunch from this podcast. And uh, until next time, everybody that's listening and Dr. Gibbons again, thanks for being a guest. Yeah, man. Great to be on with you. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nail It Ortho podcast. Dr. Gibbons crushed this episode. Uh, We hope you all enjoyed it and that you have hit the subscribe button. And uh, until next time.